Welcome back to Parashat Pinchas, Phineas. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. We've been talking about Numbers chapter 25 and how Pinchas, the grandson of Aharon, um, he, uh, uh, he took action. He, he, saw, he saw someone desecrating God's name in the actions that they were taking. God was judging the people. And right in the middle of judgment, as if this man Zimri and this woman uh, from Midian, they walk right into the, the leadership, into the midst of the people. And it's like they thumb their nose at God, who is judging them. And they begin committing an idolatrous act, a union that God had not sanctioned. In the midst of this, Pinchas sees this. And Pinchas, being a priest, he couldn't put up with it. He was, he was filled with righteous indignation. He took his spear in his hand. He did not go ask a, a fellow priest. He did not go ask Moshe, what should I do? He simply went. He took his spear. He took action. He thrust it through the both of them because they were committing a sexual act that God had not sanctioned. And because of this, God rewards Pinchas with the office of priest forever. He gives him the office of shalom. And so we pick up our reading, and uh, uh, at least in the commentary at the bottom of page four, let's talk about this priesthood. Okay, this next section is entitled "The Priesthood Established Past and Present Offices." Now, I don't think I'm going to be before you long. There are only eight or nine pages to my commentary. Four more pages. I think we'll just probably just have two parts to my commentary today: part A and part B. So this is part B. Okay. That God himself established the priesthood is, of course, well known from other passages. The entire, co- the, the, the entire priesthood um, was established by God. It's not just that um, Pinchas gets established as priest all of a sudden. He's already from priestly lineage. He's already from the tribe of Levi. And so... Recalling certain events in the life of Am Yisrael, according to Numbers 16.5, the Levitical priests were commissioned by Hashem, separated unto God, and they were allowed to approach God. Let's pick up the reading from um, from that passage. Uh, Numbers 16.5 reads, quote, Then he said to Korach and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses he will cause to come near him. Of course, in the story of the previous parasha with with, um, the rebellion with Korok a few weeks ago, we recall that Aharon, Aaron's bud, is the, uh, I'm sorry, Aaron's rod, sprouted buds and ripe almonds and flowers. Thus, God was saying to all the leaders, he's the man, he's the one I'm choosing to be the high priest. The Levitical priesthood began, if you'll recall, with the tribe of Levi and proceeded through the sons of the family of Aharon, uh, according to Numbers 18, verses 1 and verse 8, and according to Exodus 28, 1, which says, quote, Have Aharon your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadav and Avihu, Elatsar and Itamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Quote, end quote. That's God speaking to Moshe. However, physical blemishes disqualify any male descendant of Aharon, according to Leviticus 23, verse 17 through 23, from which 21, verse 17 is presented, quote, The Lord said to Moshe, 
say to Aharon, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. End quote. In other words, even though God promised Aharon that his sons would be the priests, was not across the board. If, if the sons had defects, then they would not be able to approach and come near and offer the food. Now, according to other sources, um, which I'm not quoting here, um, I don't believe this disqualified them from serving in the temple precincts. Simply, they were not allowed to bring food to God. The duties of the Levitical priesthood included, let me just list some of them for you. Uh, they included the teaching of the Torah, and you can read that in Leviticus 10.11. They included offering the sacrifices, of course. They were the go-betweens between God and his people. That's found in Leviticus chapter 9. The priests were responsible for maintaining the tabernacle in the temple. Uh, you can read that in Numbers chapter 18, verse 3. They were responsible for officiating in the holy place. Uh, you can read that in Exodus 30, verse 7 through 10. It was also their duty to inspect ceremonially unclean persons, like when someone had bright spots that were later diagnosed as tharaat, or otherwise known as leprosy. This was also the duty of the priests. They performed these um, um, uh, these diagnoses. Uh, this is in, let's see, Leviticus chapter 13 and chapter 14. <clears throat> uh, if you'll recall, the, Le the Levitical... I'm sorry, the priests also adjudicated disputes. They were like the early judges, as it were, the early magistrates. They, Before they had um, a larger system um, where they actually appointed judges and such, we also had the priests um, performing some of these roles. This is according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. And then, just for my example, they also functioned... Watch this. They functioned as tax collectors. Isn't that interesting? That's according to Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 and 26. And also, this time I want to pull in one verse from the Apostolic Scriptures, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 5. So we see that the priests didn't just go and perform religious functions. They had a very vital um, role in the community, uh, performing all of these, these duties for the people. And so it's interesting when we in the 21st century, seem to purport, at least among Christian circles for some reason, we seem to purport that the Torah has been done away with in Yeshua. And yet if we realize that, that the um, if the Torah was done away with in Yeshua, then it, and in ancient Israel, how would the people have functioned without the um, the priestly roles uh, doing what they were supposed to do, given the uh, the details that I just shared with you? Remember, even after Yeshua died, the temple continued to stand for another uh, 40 years until it was finally destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. So if Yeshua came to do away with the Torah, what was to happen to the priests? Now we do know, in fact, that the Sadducees, I'm, I, this is not in my commentary, this is just off the top of my head. We do know that the Sadducees were the um, successors to the priestly line. They were the sons of Sadduk, if you remember, from which the word Sadducee derives, Sadduk. Uh, the priestly um, offices were being um, assumed under the leadership of the Sadducees in the first century. The Pharisees were not priestly of priestly lineage. The, the Pharisees, by comparison, were just ordinary folk. They were common people. They were, I like to call them politicians. They were, they were, they were very popular with the people. They were the politicians of their day. And um, so, when the temple was destroyed, it's quite natural that the priests would be out of a job because they're, they're, you know, the temple cult being gone, they didn't really have 
um, a major role to play within the community. It's quite natural that rabbinic Judaism was birthed out of Pharisaic Judaism. Let's go back to my commentary. As great and awesome as their responsibilities were, the priest's job was only temporal. That's right. God knew all along that the Aaronic priesthood was to come alongside the Melchizedek priesthood, and we're going to talk about the Melchizedek priesthood today. The Aaronic priesthood was to come alongside the Melchizedek priesthood and help facilitate the heavenly truth that the Melchizedek priesthood was demonstrating. In other words, I've heard people say that the Aaronic priesthood came first, and then Yeshua's Melchizedek priesthood superseded the Aaronic priesthood. However, I must point out that the Melchizedek priesthood came first, and that the Aaronic priesthood came after the Melchizedek priesthood, only to come full circle with Yeshua and the Melchizedek priesthood. Do you following me? So it goes Melchizedek priesthood, then Aaronic priesthood, and then Melchizedek priesthood again. So let's let's study that today. So again, as great and awesome as their responsibilities were, the priest's job was only temporal. Ultimately, their place in the community was to do what? It was to point the way to a future Kohen Gadol, a future high priest that would, quote, bring to fullness, end quote, their own office. This is not to minimize the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was a genuine representation of the heavenly Melchizedek priesthood. It really was. They did their job well. They performed their functions according to the Torah and according to the instructions that God handed down to Moshe. So we cannot look down at the Aaronic priesthood. A study of the book of Hebrews would be would really be in order here. And I'm not going to do a complete study, but many of you have asked me to talk about the priesthood, and so I'm going to talk about it today. Let's just remind ourselves again that Yeshua is the fullness of of the whole of, of, of the whole Aaronic priesthood, of the whole temple cult, of the whole priestly caste. He is the fullness. However, it is not Yeshua versus the Aaronic priesthood. It is Yeshua and the Aaronic priesthood. They worked in conjunction, in tandem with the heavenly reality. God told Moshe way back in Exodus chapter twenty five to have the people Take a contribution, a truma, so that they can build a tabernacle, a mishkan. And what did God promise? That if you build it, I will dwell among you. Build it according to the pattern that I've shown you on the mountain. The tabernacle did not compete with the heaven reality. Far from it. The tabernacle on earth was a genuine replica of the heavenly reality. Therefore, the tabernacle on earth with its priestly members mimicked and walked into the fullness of the heavenly reality. They were not the reality in and of themselves. They were genuine copies of the heavenly reality. They were a replica that worked. And the reason they worked is because God promised Moshe that if you build it, I will dwell among you. And so God's presence was really there. It really was. It was not a competition of the earthly and the heavenly. It was a cooperation between the earthly and the heavenly. It's not this versus that. It was this in conjunction with that. Okay, With that in view, 
Let's keep reading into my commentary. Yeshua HaMashiach is the ultimate and final Kohen Hagadol. And as such, he is possessor of the final covenant of Shalom. God saw fit to give us earthly examples of the heavenly realities. And the earthly examples were not, were not phony. They were real. Aaron was a real high priest. And Yeshua is the type of which Aaron the shadow points to. But the shadow was real. It was not a phony. It was a real shadow. Aaron was a real person. And the priesthood was a genuine priesthood. It was a genuine role that God asked these men to walk into on earth. Okay? We need not compare the two and come to the conclusion that the earthly was bad and that the heavenly was good. If we study the book of Hebrews properly, we're going to understand that the proper hermeneutic in which to approach the book of Hebrews is not bad versus good. Instead, it's good versus better. That's right. To have the priesthood on earth is good. But to have the priesthood in heaven is better. Even the great Torah personage, Malkitzedek, which is Melchizedek, he pales in comparison to Yeshua. Let's now talk about this man, Malkitzedek. Now again, some have purported that Malkitzedek is Yeshua. I don't believe so. I believe that that this is proven, this is borne out by the, some of the verses that we're going to read, particularly in, in the Psalms. Let's read this, alright? The name Malkitzedek, or in the KJV, it's rendered as Melchizedek. Um, Malkitzedek is how it shows up in the Hebrew. His name means, my king is righteousness, or king of righteousness. Okay, Malki is my king. Melech is king, and Malki is my king. He is first mentioned in the Torah, in the book of Genesis. Now again, we're talking about the priesthood because of, um, of a Pinchas. Right? Pinchas was of priestly background. and So we're, gonna, we're just going to do a study on the priesthood today. And many people following my studies have wanted me to do a study, uh, a closer study on the priesthood. So here you go. Malkitzedek is first mentioned in the Torah in the book of Genesis in a meeting with the patriarch Avram, you remember? Chapter 14 of Genesis, verses 18-20 through 20, reads this way. Quote, Malkitzedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was Cohen of El Elyon. So he blessed him with these words. Blessed be Avram by El Elyon, maker of heaven of earth, heaven of earth and blessed be El Elyon who handed your enemies over to you. End quote. Now, he's again mentioned uh, in the highly messianic Psalm 110 at verse 4, and finally he figures in the New Covenant book uh, in the New Testament at Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verse 6, as well as verse 10 and verse 20, and he's the subject of Hebrews chapter 7 as well. Now, although the Torah mentions him receiving the tithe from our father Abraham back in Genesis, in contradistinction to Pinchas, no record of his official lineage, in essence, king uh, to king and to priest, is given in the immediate text. Okay, it doesn't mention. Um, uh, in other words, let me back up and look at this. Um, Malkitzedek receives a tithe from Avraham, but there's no record of his official lineage. Okay, um, like in the Torah portion, it says in verse uh, 11 of Numbers chapter 25. Pinchas, now listen to his lineage, Pinchas, the son of Elitzar, the son of Aharon, the Kohen. 
But with Malkitzedek, it doesn't give a record of his ancestry. All right? Now, this absence of his ancestry has caused no small speculation on the part of the rabbis of antiquity, as well as Christians, I might add. Especially since in Judaism, the roles of king and priest are separate roles. You following me so far? The priests are not supposed to be kings. And the kings are not supposed to be priests. In fact, it's quite known, well known, that the priestly lineage descends from the tribe of Levi. And in contradistinction, or by comparison, the kingly line proceeds from Judah. So, we have a man here who then personifies a king and a priest. Now again, many would say, well, of course he does, Ariel, because he's Yeshua. Not so fast, not so fast. Normally, excluding the first king, Saul of, 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 of Kish, the kingly line runs through David, okay? And David is of the tribe of Judah. Accordingly, the priestly lineage is traced through Aharon, the brother of Moshe. To be sure, Pinchas is from the right lineage. He's a priest. He's, he's from the tribe of Levi. But Malkitzedek was both king of Shalem, or Shalem, Salem is how it's written in, in your English Bibles. He's both king of Shalem and priest of Hashem the Most High. So how is this possible? Now, I believe, initially, Hashem alluded to the answer in the prophecy stated about the Messiah in Psalm 110. And this should have tipped the rabbis off about Hashem's provision of a future ruler who would, in fact, belong to both the priestly and the kingly lines. Okay? In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. If the rabbis of antiquity could have only read the book of Hebrews, then they could have seen that, the, that only one person in history ever fulfilled both of these roles. And this man, without a doubt, is Yeshua. If the rabbis of today would also read the apostolic scriptures, then I believe that the same conclusion would be reached, that they would realize that Yeshua is the only man who has ever stepped in to these offices simultaneously. But the book of Hebrews says something else about this man, Malkitzedek, that is very peculiar indeed. So let's turn again to the book of Hebrews, chapter three. I'm sorry, chapter seven, verses three through eight, and begin to look at this man. All right, it is stated, quote, that there is no record of his father, mother, ancestry, birth, or death. Okay, end quote. I like to point out for you that it does not state that he never had any of these, nor that he is alive forevermore. It says that he is testified to be still alive, which means midrashically, for teaching purposes only, not literally. Okay, I don't believe that the writer of Hebrews believed that Malkitzedek was an immortal, like Yeshua, never to die, or died once and never to be raised again, or never to die again, I should say. Um, I believe it's a midrash. I don't believe, and this is just me, I, well, it's not only me, it's others as well, some people say, nope, Yeshua must be Malkitzedek. And others say, no, I don't believe he is. He is mysterious, to be sure. I can't exactly explain how he shows up on the scene, how Avram pays him tithes, how he's a king, and then he just disappears. The Babylonian Talmud has identified Malkitzedek as the son of Shem, Noach's son, you remember? And that's according to um, uh, Masechet Nadarim, Daf 32b. That's in the Talmud Bavli. 
The Torah only leads us to that seeming conclusion without explicitly stating it. What seeming conclusion? That he's testified to be still alive. Okay? Let's turn to the book of Hebrews real quick. I want to read that out of the KJV. Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. Starting in verse 3, quote... Well, let me just actually start in Pasuk 1. For this Malkitzedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And verily they are they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priest, have, had a, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Okay, let me drop down to verse 11. Um, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it, under it the people receive the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aharon, over Aaron? Let me look at that verse there. Um, verse 11, after the order of Melchizedek. This mirrors verse 20 of the previous chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter twenty, uh, Hebrews chapter six, verse twenty, which reads, quote, "Whither the forerunner is for us entered, I'm sorry, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. Look at the last clause. Made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. If Jesus is Melchizedek, how can he be after the order of Melchizedek? That's my point." So I don't believe the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is Malkitzedek. Rather, Malkitzedek is a type and shadow of Yeshua. A very good one, I might add. And it's so much so that Malkitzedek's ancestry is not recorded for us in the Torah, which leads us to um, assume that he, he was neither born nor he died. Now, again, in contrast, Yeshua did have a mother and a father, at least an earthly one. And... Um, uh, we we have to realize that the text is is not really saying that Malkitzedek is Yeshua. So let me go back to my commentary here. The Torah only leads us to that seeming conclusion without explicitly stating it. Now I could be wrong. I know some people who are just convinced that Jesus, that Yeshua, is Malkitzedek. And you know what? At this point in time, I'm willing to do further research and be proven wrong. That's okay. I'm not a, I'm not a subject matter expert. I don't have a corner on the market of truth. And uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and I'm willing to, to, to humble myself and be corrected. That's okay. But given the research that I've done thus far, as of the uh, current date of this parsha and of this commentary, I don't believe that Malkitzedek is, in fact, Yeshua, or was, in fact, Yeshua, reincarnate. We need to be careful when interpreting the text here. Do not make it say something that it does not. By, but by seeing in Malkitzedek our Messiah, Yeshua, it's okay to see in Malkitzedek a picture of Yeshua. I believe that's entirely accurate. By seeing in Malkitzedek, 
our Messiah Yeshua, the connection is strengthened as to his, Yeshua's role as both king and priest. And that's why I think it's important that even though we don't make Malkitzedek into Yeshua or vice versa, we do in fact relate the two together. Because the priest and the king is personified in these two characters. To be sure, I believe that it's exactly what the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, had in mind when he inspired King David to make the Messianic prophecy about his future ancestor in the book of Psalms there. Now another feature of the priests, since we're talking about the Kohanim day, that's worthy of comparison with Yeshua, and that is and uh, uh, is worth us uh, realizing, and this is where the book of Hebrews was kind of hinting at uh, when it talked about if perfection were reached, is the longevity in office. Now if you remember, Levitical priests served for 25 years from age 25 to age 50, and this is according to the information given to us in Numbers chapter 8, verse 24 and 25. Okay? They only stayed in office for 25 years. Um, the high priest, by the way, was high priest until he died. But the, the other priests, the, the Levitical priests, they, they had a limited time. Other than the family of Aharon, there were three other family lines in the tribes of Levi. Okay, Numbers chapter 4. We, let's just name them. Okay, We had the Kohathites. In Numbers chapter 4, and what they were called to do, they were all Levitical. Um, but within these family lines, okay, we had Aaron's line, family line, then we had the Kohathites, who were, uh, these were the people who maintained the furniture, the vessels, and the veil of the tabernacle. Okay, they were close to God there as well. And then the second family we had were the Gershonites, from Gershon, their father, and these were the ones who maintained the coverings, the hangings, and the doors of the tabernacle. And then finally, we had the Merarites, and um, these were the families that maintained the supports, including the planks, the bars, and the cords. Um, all in all, the split split between the three and the four families of sorts. We had the tabernacle maintained, okay, between Aharon's family the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merorites. So um, don't think that God put all of the responsibilities on the family of Aharon. Now initially, if you remember, Hashem had selected the entire nation of Israel to be his priest. That was plan A, according to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. However, if you remember, according to the narrative, after the nation proved to be inadequate as priests, then God switched into plan B, and in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 10, it was the Levites who supported Moshe in Exodus chapters 26 through 28. And that's why, or that's why we read, it's chapter 32 of Exodus, which was the incident at the golden calf, where it was the, Le the Levites who took their swords in their hands and in in typical Pinchas fashion, they went through and they slew every man their brother in righteous indignation. And because of that, God rewarded them alone with the office of priest. They were selected as Hashem's priest, uh, priests. You can read Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 9 for these details. So it's important for us as we read through the books of um, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers where we focus a lot on the priest to, to get these details about who was a priest and who wasn't. But the book of Hebrews again tells of a what? A transformation, a metathesis in the Greek. A transformation of the priestly lineage. And again, um, let's turn to... 
uh, of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. I read verse 11 where it says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aharon? Now it's speaking, of course, of Yeshua. Yeshua superseded the Aaronic priesthood. But look at Pasuk 12. For the priesthood being changed, the word changed there in the Greek is metathesis. Okay? Um, the priesthood being changed there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the book of Hebrews tells of a transformation of the priestly lineage. Again, let us examine the details of the Levitical priesthood to compare them to Yeshua. All right? This time I want to go back to 1 Chronicles, Divra Hayamim Aleph. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 15 um, and chapter 16, verses 4 through 6, as well as verses 37 through 43, remember, David rearranged the Levitical priesthood into 24 orders or 24 courses. And what he did is he assigned 16 courses to Elitzar and 8 courses to Ithamar. These were, again, Aaron's sons, remember? And this rearrangement was chartered because of a population explosion in uh, the time period of David's reign. So, with this information now, we can kind of see a larger picture as we're seeing the, um, the, the, the evolution of the priesthood. According to Numbers chapter 20, verse 28, the office of the high priest was transmitted upon death to the oldest living son of the high priest. Let's read that verse. Quote, Moshe removed Aharon's garments and put them on his son Eleazar, or Eleazar. And Aharon died there on top of the mountain. Then Moshe and Eleazar came down from the mountain. End quote. So what happens? Aharon, who is high priest, dies, and his oldest Living son, Elitzar, assumes the role of Kohen Gadol, high priest. And so according to Numbers chapter 25, verses 10 through 13, Hashem, in our current Torah portion, makes a covenant with Pinchas. And who is Pinchas? He is the eldest son of Elitzar. You see the picture now? Which guaranteed a lasting priesthood with the Aaronic line. So, Pinchas is the oldest son of Eletzar, and Eletzar was the oldest son of Aharon. And so it's natural why we understand that Pinchas is becoming the high priest. Now, as we follow along, the line, the lineage of the kings, actually switched during Saul of Ben-Kish's reign. Saul, of course, was the first king of Israel that God rejected and chose David instead. Eli, if you remember, a descendant of Ithamar, what did he do? He didn't take the office rightfully. Instead, he assumed the office of high priest. However, he functioned only de facto and not de jure. He did not function legally as the priest. He was not the legal high priest. He assumed the office. In fact, Eli's descendants were removed from the priesthood. Why? You can read it in Samuel. Because of Eli's failure to censure 
his sons. Read 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 23 through 25 as well as chapter 3 verse 13. So we're seeing that the priestly lineage went through some, some changes. It went through some difficulties as the people failed to do what God asked them to do. It's no wonder that the earthly priesthood would need to go through another transformation in the time of Yeshua. Because men are imperfect. Men fail God. Even though God doesn't fail them, we fail God. Look what happens also. Shlomo, David's son, Solomon, what did he do? He obviously read the Torah and realized where the priesthood was supposed to be. And so what he did is he restored the Aaronic line to the high priesthood. And what did he do? He replaced Abiathar, Eli's descendant, with Zadok from the line of Elitzar because the lineage had been running in the wrong line for so long, and the wrong family had been in the it, it had been in the line of of um, of um, of, of uh, Ithamar for so long, and um, uh, Shlomo realized that this was wrong, and so um, he restored it uh, to the uh, line of Zadok or Zadok is how you probably would say it, who was from the line of Elitzar or Eliezer, which of course was um, where Pincus was from, right? And you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 26, 27, and 35. So Solomon did the right thing. He realized that God had said that this is where the priestly lineage should, should come from. It belongs to Aaron and his sons, and according to the promise I made to Pincus, it belongs to them forever. And so the people were not walking in obedience. And Solomon corrected their error. Now during the ministry of the prophet Yeremiah, Jeremiah, we have Sariah being the high priest. And what happened? He was taken prisoner and executed by Nebuzar uh, Adadan in Second um, Kings chapter 25 verses 18 through 21. And so what happened was the high priest's son, um, Josedek, he was supposed to be, I guess, high priest because his father was taken prisoner. And he was executed. But, if you realize, instead, in the book of Haggai, um, uh, Josedek was not allowed to function as high priest. What happened? Instead, he lived and died as a prisoner in Babylon. You can read that in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Instead, Josedek's son... Joshua, Yehoshua, he functioned as the high priest during the ministry of Zechariah. And you can read this in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. So we see that the priesthood has had its ups and the priesthood has had its downs. But God made a promise to Aharon and to Pinchas of our current Torah portion. I give you the covenant of Shalom forever. Let's read it again in Numbers chapter 25 verse 10 and 11 and 12 and verse 13. <laughs> Adonai said to Moshe, Pinchas the son of Elatzar, the son of Aharon the Kohen has deflected my anger from the people of Israel by being zealous by being as zealous as I am so that I didn't destroy them speaking of the people in my own zeal. Therefore say I am giving him my covenant 
of Shalom, making a covenant with him and his descendants after him that the office of Kohen will be theirs forever. This is because he was zealous on behalf of his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. End quote. So we see God makes a promise to Pinchas. The office is yours forever. So despite the failings of the people of Israel to elect the proper persons for the priestly offices, God made certain that it would eventually come back to Aaron's family. What does the book of Hebrews now teach us concerning our great high priest Yeshua and how we are to understand that Yeshua cannot... He, he cannot compete with the tribe of Levi because of the promises that God made to Aaron's family. Let's read the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. And again, this time I want to start with verse 11, but I want to go all the way through chapter... Uh, I want to go all, through, all the way through verse 28, and I'm going to read it out of the contemporary English version. And with this, I want to bring my commentary to a close, okay? Quote, even though the law of Moses says that the priests must be descendants of Levi, those are Levi, those priests cannot make anyone perfect. So there needs to be a priest like Malkitzedek rather than one from the priestly family of Aharon. And when the rules for selecting a priest are changed, the law must also be changed. The person we are talking about is our Lord, who came from a tribe that had never had anyone to serve as a priest at the altar. Everyone knows he came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never said that priests would come from that tribe. All of this becomes clearer when someone who is like Melchizedek is appointed to be a priest. That person wasn't appointed because of his ancestors, but because his life can never end. The scriptures say about him, you are a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. In this way, a weak and useless command was put aside because the law cannot make anything perfect. At the same time, we are given a much better hope and it can bring us close to God. God himself made a promise when this priest was appointed, but he did not make a promise like this when the other priests were appointed. The promise he made is, I, the Lord, promise that you will be a priest forever and I will never change my mind. This means that Jesus guarantees us a better agreement with God. There have been a lot of other priests, and all of them have died. But Jesus will never die so that he will be a priest forever. He is forever able to save the people he leads to God because he always lives to speak to God for them. Jesus is the high priest we need. He is holy and innocent and faultless and not at all like us sinners. Jesus is honored above all beings in heaven, and he is better than any other high priest. Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices each day for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He offered a sacrifice once for all when he gave himself. The law appoints priests who have weaknesses, but God's promise, which came later than the law, appoints his son. And he is the perfect high priest forever. End quote. Taken, you take, now these passages were powerful. But if we were to take these passages using the wrong hermeneutic, 
then we would understand these passages to be teaching that the Levitical priesthood as, uh, as, as played out through the family line of Aaron was faulty that it was that it was um, that it was uh, how should I say that it was wrong that it was bad I'm going to use the word bad but you know what it was not bad it was good it was just not able to bring to perfection the, to the, the, that is to say bring to the goal the worshiper who draw near to God who drew near to God only the heavenly high priest could accomplish this goal of changing the person on the inside circumcising circumcising the heart of the individual it doesn't mean that the earthly priesthood failed in doing what it was supposed to do it means that we need to understand as we read through the pages of the Torah and as we read through the pages of the book of Hebrews we need to understand this very important fact please listen up don't misunderstand me the earthly priesthood was never designed to bring the worshiper to the perfection that the heavenly priesthood could bring. Are you understanding me? The earthly priesthood did not fail in its function because its function was not designed to bring the worshiper to the goal of having a circumcised heart. It was the goal of the earthly priesthood to serve in the earthly tabernacle. And on that level, it washed the sanctuary. It wiped clean the sancta with the blood of the atoning animals. It cleansed the earthly tabernacle with their service and with their, 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 their rituals. It did not seek to supersede or replace the heavenly reality. The earthly priesthood worked in concert. It worked in conjunction with, it worked in tandem with the heavenly reality. It was not a relationship of bad versus good, earthly versus heavenly. Are you following me? It was a relationship of good and better. The best scenario for an earthly worshiper during the time period of the Tanakh, where we had a tabernacle and a temple, the best scenario was to bring sacrifices to the earthly temple while at the same time understanding within your heart that God has forgiven you based on the promises given throughout the Tanakh of the, 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 the seed of Avraham who was to come. The word of the Lord who was promised to Avraham so long ago. This word of the Lord would be fulfilled in the person known as Yeshua. And so the earthly priesthood gained its authority from the promises made in the heavenlies. From the reality that God gave to Moshe and explained to him that the heavenlies were the genuine and the earthly was genuine but it was a copy of the genuine in the heavenlies are you understanding my points here today people please write in if you have more questions the heavenly and the earthly they work together in fact I want to make this one last point I'm looking for a certain pasuk a certain verse in the book of Hebrews let me see if I can find it here speaking of Yeshua Okay, uh, let's see if I can find it here. Okay, here it is. It is in Hebrews chapter 8, 
verse 4, but to get a running start, let me start in verse 1. Now all of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the, set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Verse 3, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Now look at verse 4. Speaking of Yeshua, the writer of Hebrews says, quote, For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. End quote. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Isn't that interesting? That's right, Yeshua is a priest. But the earthly priesthood belongs to Aharon. God promised Pinchas in our commentary that your priesthood will survive through your family forever. I'm giving you the covenant of Shalom. Yeshua was from the wrong tribe, people. He was from the wrong tribe. He could not, if he were on earth, be a candidate for high priest. I'm sorry. This is not to diminish Yeshua's office as priest. It's just to understand the proper relationship between the heavenly and the earthly. Do you see my point now? Yeshua was from the tribe of Judah. And no priests were to be chosen from the tribe of Judah. That was the Levitical privilege. God made a promise to Aharon. God made a promise to Pinchas. Yeshua is the fullness of what the earthly was pointing to. But Yeshua does not compete with the earthly. The earthly did its job. It brought the worshiper to the earthly sanctuary to where they could approach God on that earthly level. But the earthly priesthood could not bring the worshiper to the goal of surrendering to the God of Israel. The earthly pointed the way, but the Spirit of God can change the heart of a man so that this man surrenders to Yeshua the Messiah, the promised word of the Lord. And so we see that the Torah plays its function well when it comes alongside the Spirit of God to lead a man towards the decision of accepting the God of the Torah, the God of the tabernacle, the God of the priestly uh, lineage, the God of the priesthood. To accept God on his terms is to accept Yeshua, the Messiah, spoken about therein. However, the earthly priesthood served to remind us that we will forever serve a holy God, and if we wish to approach him, we cannot circumvent his method of approach. The earthly priesthood served to, to uh, allow us to approach an otherwise unapproachable God. Perhaps in another commentary, maybe in my uh, Shomer Mitzvot series, we'll do a study on the priesthood, and I'll go more deep, uh, deeply into the book of Hebrews, and we'll study more about the priesthood. We've got to understand that the, that the priesthood in the heavenlies and the priesthood on earth did not compete with one another. That is an incorrect hermeneutic that the later emerging Christian church has seemed to engineer. The writer of the book of Hebrews sees no incongruity between the earthly priesthood and the heavenly priesthood. What he does is understand that the earthly priesthood is good, but it has its limits. 
Limitations are not bad. Limitations, especially when imposed by God, are good. But the heavenly priesthood has no limitations. And therefore, it is better. It's good compared to better, not bad compared to good. Okay? With that, I'll close out the commentary. And with the closing blessing for the Torah portion, we read, Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.